right, church, hey, it's that time. We're going to open our Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We're going to pick up where we left off. If you're new to the church, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the whole counsel of God, as it's called. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father God, we look to you. We need you. This is your word. You have breathed into our hearts uh, truth that sets us free, keeps us on the straight and narrow path, which leads to life. There's great blessing and fearing and revering the Lord and living by your word. We pray that as you've ordained our footsteps to be seated here to hear this very message, that we would be open able to hear, understand, and apply and live this truth to be a blessing to you and to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, how many of you out there like to travel? You like to get on a plane, take off and enjoy? Uh, Yeah, good many of you. Then you are enjoying this section of... The book of Acts from chapter 13 to chapter 20, the three organized uh, efforts to take Jesus at his word, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. It started in Jerusalem and then it's spreading to the Mediterranean. I've got a picture here of the third missionary journey here in Acts chapter 20 where we find ourselves this morning. It's the third and final. Of course, there have been endless and uh, endless journeys ever since for 2,000 years. But the three that got recorded, the first three for the first uh, 30 years from Acts 1 to Acts 28, 30 years has elapsed and we see how the gospel went forth. You know, God loves the people he made. He wills that none perish. He wants them to be saved, to come back to him, to enjoy reconciliation and love. And he made a way for men to know him and to escape his wrath. And that message is what saves. When people hear the good news and combine what they're hearing with faith, they trust in Christ. And he offers them forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. That's the message that's going forth here. Now it's time uh, to be homeward bound. And so as you have been seeing, the team last time, they left Europe. They had visited up and down the coast of modern-day Greece. And they left from the port there at Philippi uh, to mainland uh, Asia Minor, as it's called, And uh, first stop, you know, back in the day, you don't just take direct flights somewhere. You know, you're there in six hours. Uh, This would take weeks and weeks to get from Europe back to Jerusalem. They're heading home to the sending church there. And so it would take, well, you know, actually, it says from Philippi, it's Passover time. And Paul is in a hurry because he wants to get to Jerusalem with this huge love offering from the Gentile churches there by Pentecost. That gives him uh, 50 days, seven weeks. And so it's going to take every bit of that uh, to get there. And so the first layover was last time. Last time we saw uh, he met 
they had a layover there for a week. They met with the little church that had been planted several years earlier, and they spent a week together. And now, time to move on. And this is where we're headed for this morning's passage. Uh, he's going to travel past Ephesus. He's not going to go to Ephesus because he was there for three years. They evangelized together, teams and made relationships. He knows if he goes to Ephesus, he'll never get out of there in time. So the next best thing is he, they travel past Ephesus and they stop at where you see Miletus. Miletus is 65 miles south. What he's going to do, he's going to get off the boat and he's going to call for all the pastors and, and, and they're called elders. It's the same word in the Greek, different words in Greek meaning the same thing. They're interchangeable, as I'm trying to say there. And uh, he's going to call for them and have a little bit farewell conference, as it were. And that's the speech for our reflection this morning. It's profound. There are 15 or so speeches in the book of Acts, sermons, evangelistic uh, messages. There's only one where only Christians are addressed. And this one is profound because if you're ever wondering what Christian service and being a minister, you're a minister, the, the Bible calls Everyone who knows the Lord, a minister, it's the word to serve, to be a servant. It's the same word. So I may do it as a vocation, but we all do it as a calling. And so what he's going to tell these ministers, he's really speaking in general terms of all of us. And so we're all ears because perhaps the most important teaching, God's blueprint, for what it means to be a servant of the Lord, to do his work, is found in these very precious and profound words. Now, it's a long message. Uh, It's about four paragraphs. So we're going to, I'm going to read the passage in its entirety so you get the context. And then we'll, we'll take paragraph one and two today. That's all we have time for. It's so rich, so profound, so many helpful insights. We'll we'll drill down on paragraphs one and two, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll finish three and four. So we'll get the whole thing. But you'll hear the message. So they dock at Miletus, they get off the boat, and Paul starts to make some phone calls. Wink, wink. (laughs) From Miletus, they're at the beach. He's on the beach. Paul sends to Ephesus for the elders of the church, and there, there are many. When they arrived, he said to them, and here's his speech. You know, gentlemen, how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day we met there in the province of Asia, the whole region there, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews who were constantly trying to assassinate him. You know, gentlemen, that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks, whoever you are, (laughs) no favoritism, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's doing there, of course, is 
leaving them with an example to follow. He's recalling their minds to how he lived, and he wants to impress that on them. And then he says, and I'm going to leave you with a motto. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm on my way. When we're done with the conference, I'm getting on the boat. And he does. Not knowing exactly what's going to happen, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit is warning me that prison and hardships are facing me. And, and here's my bottom line, guys. Here, here's my North Star. This is how I run my life. This is what makes me tick. I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. It's his task, their task, and our task. So he leaves them with the motto. Now he's going to move on to a warning. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. I've held nothing back. If you guys err, if you turn away, that's on you. I've done my job. So keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds. And I just want to point this out. He uses first to the elders... Then he calls them overseers, and then he uses the word pastor, the shepherd word there. So all three of those terms describe the function of the pastor. When you call him an elder, you're speaking of a maturity, a spiritual maturity. When you call him an overseer, it's his role of managing uh, the affairs of the church, and when you call him a shepherd, it means to feed, you see. So he's a teacher of his word. All the words are used interchangeably. Uh, we just use the word pastor mostly, don't we? So be, be a good pastor of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you dressed like sheep, right? And will not spare the flock even from your own number. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard, men. Remember that for three years I'd never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And then he closes up with a good shout out to hard work and generosity. If you're going to make it, man, and I could leave you with two thoughts, hard work and being generous in spirit, heart, and financially in every way generous. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified means separated to God for God's purposes. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold. So gentlemen, this is going to be a temptation. There are going to be TV preachers and all kinds of things coming. But follow my example, because that wasn't why I was in ministry. You yourselves know that these hands of mine supplied my own needs and, and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you 
that by this kind of hard work, gentlemen, we must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Be a giver, not a taker. When he had said this, he knelt down and all of them, with all of them, and prayed. They all wept and they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was the statement that they'd never see his face again. Then they got back onto the ship. So those are the beautiful words addressed to pastors, ministers, and the flock at large, the ministers of the gospel seated before me this day. And so uh, we will now take a look at the example of Paul that he gives them right away, starting at verse 17. What's amazing to me, note takers, is that um, he doesn't start with, remember what I told you. He says, remember how I lived. More important than going to how sound your doctrine is, which is very important, he goes first to living a godly life and practicing what you preach. Why? If you don't practice what you preach, if you don't live the gospel, if your walk doesn't match your talk, what does it matter? What does it matter? Because your message is null and void. We lose credibility when our lives don't reflect the character of the one we're proclaiming. For example, I told you about the man who stood and preached a little sermon at his father's funeral there in Backaville. I sat there listening to a man who was obviously intoxicated and everybody knew it and everyone smelled him from a mile away as he preached the gospel, drunk. This is why you have Paul saying, remember how I lived. Follow my example as I follow Christ. Imitate me. I mean, he gets to a place where he's able to say to the Philippians, and I have it for you. He says, whatever things you've, you've learned or received or heard me say or seen in me, Put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. And I had this thought that this is why he starts with follow my example because that's how truth is often more times caught than taught. You see, we imprint on impressionable people around us and you all have a congregation that, that God thinks you're shepherding. Every one of us has a sphere of influence. What and he's called you to serve them. And how they learn is not just by you telling them what to do and not to do, but they're watching what you do and not do. How you handle your troubles, how you handle your stress, how you do your marriage, how you start your day with the Bible and a cup of coffee. And they see that. And more importantly than saying, start your mornings in the word and keep telling them that all the time when they've seen it over and over and year after year. Yes, they can still choose to reject the truth that's been imprinted on them, but it'll be harder. This is the way we do life. So he says in that opening paragraph there, 
you guys know how I've lived the whole time I was with you. So he's speaking about, gentlemen, you need to have integrity. Integrity, the word means whole. It, it means where every part of you is a Christian. Gentlemen, not just on Sunday, but on Friday night. Not when all eyes are on you, but when no one can see you. Integrity. Integrity, if you speak of it as structural integrity, we mean the ability of a structure to withstand its intended load without failing, without buckling due to weakness, stress, and fatigue. Live the Christian life in such a way that when the pressures come, you don't buckle because you have integrity. Do you see? So he said, instead of telling them, tough times are coming, you guys need to be strong. He says, remember the tough times and watch me in the tough times. And by God's grace, in my weakness, God's power was made strong, that I continued serving the Lord in spite of the stress and the strains. Do that. Do what you remember seeing. So powerful. (laughs) Verse 18, you men know. And then he says again in verse 20, you guys know yourselves. And then he says it again in 34. You guys know. You've seen me. Watch me. How I lived the whole time. Do you see that? The whole time. From day one. I didn't have seasons of serving the Lord. I just am his servant and I serve him every day. You see, I was a happy Christian serving the Lord among you. I was a sad Christian serving the Lord among you. I was a struggling Christian serving the Lord among you. I was a slandered Christian, hurting Christian serving the Lord among you. I was a distraught Christian. I was a joyful Christian, but every time I was a Christian because I am a Christian and I serve the Lord come hell or high water. Whatever my circumstances, they will be constantly changing. But I will not determine to serve the Lord based on my level of discomfort or how hot it gets out there in opposition to me and the message of God. I serve the Lord faithfully and you men must do the same. Now, You know, that's just an amazing thing. You may be the only Bible some people read, you know. You may be the only Jesus that some people see. And so it's important. Now, Paul says, regarding my example, there are four areas right here in your paragraph. One, he said, I served God in humility. This can mean also in humbling circumstances, in humiliations, in things that humiliated me in humiliating circumstances. I had a lowly heart, and despite the humiliation, I continue to serve the Lord. Secondly, he said, I served him through tears. Thirdly, I, I served him through testing. I was tested. I served him faithfully. By his grace, I passed the test. And you must pass the test. And fourthly, uh, he says, I serve the Lord without compromising the message. Why does he say that? Because the message is what was getting him, him into a lot of trouble. 
So he said, even though it was getting me into a lot of trouble, you needed to hear the truth. So I didn't compromise. I didn't make an amendment to make my life more convenient or comfortable. And that's what you men have to do. And so let's talk about these things. I serve the Lord with great humility. Uh, this is just amazing. You know, it's no easy task to be humiliated or to be in humble circumstances, to be surrounded by people and you don't have enough money. He said, oftentimes, I didn't have enough clothing. He said, we went hungry. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, I've often been in deprivation in humble circumstances, yet in lowliness of spirit, I trusted God and served God through those times. Gentlemen, deprivation will come. Humble times, humbling times. You serve the Lord anyway. You know, Paul took the mindset that he was a slave. He'd call himself a doulos in Greek. It just means just a 100%. You have zero rights. You're all about your master. You don't have a life. It's all about uh, the master. And, and in this regard, he was a slave to God and a humble servant to everybody else. He said, I am here to serve others. Uh, this is one of the greatest assets to Christian living and ministry and life is a humble heart to be like Jesus who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Don't be afraid of me because I'm gentle and humble, lowly in heart. This is the one who wraps himself in flesh, comes down and says, it's not about me. I'm here to serve. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Now, we are servants of the servant. So we have to share that servant's heart. And that, my friend, is what he said. In lowliness of heart, in humiliating circumstances, I continued to serve the Lord. Lewis Carroll, in his famous book, Alice in Wonderland, said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I like that a lot. That's really what we have to do. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So he wants the pastors to go on from that beach, remembering, do you guys need grace? If you want grace, God will lavish grace on those who are humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and in due time, he will lift you up. Another beautiful uh, scripture there. Secondly, he said, I serve the Lord through my tears, and I want you gentlemen to do it. Know, know this. Tears are coming, and there's no reason for you to give up, to stop serving, to take a break. Through the tears we go. That's our calling. So he says, listen, uh, and this is what many Christians do. They shipwreck because of the tears. And so they draw a line in the sand, some of us, and we say, I'll serve you, but don't cross this line. If you hurt me that bad, then I stop serving. Paul says, we get hurt. The lines get crossed. Things you would never believe God would allow. 
He allows sometimes the things he hates to accomplish the things he loves. And, and that's already happened to all of you. And he tells his men, it's going to keep happening and you will keep serving the Lord no matter what because your decision isn't based on your comfort levels. It's based on his reality that he has called you and made you his servant. So that's what he's saying there. Like Jesus, who it says during his days on the earth, Jesus offered up prayers and petitions and fervent cries and tears that through the Son of God's tears, he continued to serve the Father. Through the tears, like King David, King David's Psalms, the Psalms, let me quote from Psalm 6, I'm worn out from my groaning and sighing. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. And through the tears, he's a man after God's own heart. He doesn't stop the pursuit of God's heart because he's hurting, because he's confused, because his kids are messed up. Oh, my word. One of them wants to kill him. Tears. He's got troubles. He has friends and advisors who go sideways on him. Tears. He's got a crazy King Saul who uh, uh, David falls under him and, 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 and loves him. And he wants to kill him and spent eight years chasing him. He's hiding in caves, crying, serving the Lord through tears. Paul wept too. Tears <laughs> flowed down that face of his, but he kept serving God. That's what happens here. I think he would say more important than the tears, gentlemen, the comfort of the Holy Spirit when we're wounded. God is so faithful to come in, comfort us by his spirit, <laughs> show us how he's using the thing that's causing the tears for good and comforting us with that knowledge and with his presence that he will help us and carry us along as we serve him through our tears. I'm sure Paul had to get up many times, many times, and share the gospel, but inwardly his heart was torn up hurting, sad, confused. But he knew he had to put his game face on. And there's nothing hypocritical about that. You put your game face on, you cry your tears, and you go on serving the Lord. Amen. Amen. Gentlemen, don't let heartache derail you. Serve the Lord through your tears. And then he says, and even though I was severely tested, love the word trial. Who's on trial? You are. I am. The second a painful circumstance is allowed into our lives, let the jury begin. We're going to find out. We're going to find out. That's why it's called testing. Even though I was tested by assassination plots all the time, through the testings, we were having Bible studies through the flogging, through the beating, through the imprisonments. And though sometimes I had to leave a sermon high and dry, I had to go out the side door because they were going to kill me, right? But guess what? Through 
the adversity, through the testing, the church was open. We were gathering. I was preaching the gospel. We were having home fellowship groups. We celebrated the Lord's table through the testings, the beatings, the floggings, the arrests, the test. And by God's grace, we passed the test. What was the test? Will you serve me in pain and sorrow? Yeah, like Job's wife. Job's wife, wow. I don't know where he found that woman, but it was a bad day uh, because Job lost everything, as you know. I mean, painful stuff like his kids and his possessions, his bank account, his health. And his wife chimes in one day and says that you're still holding on to your integrity. Do you see that? Because he wouldn't say anything bad about God. He kept praising God through his struggles, serving God through his adversity. She said, why don't you just give up, curse God, and die? And he said, you're talking like a foolish woman. He says in Job chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, shall we only serve God in the good times and not the bad? There it is. That's what Paul's saying. I'll serve God in good times and I'll serve him in bad. And there's nothing that's going to happen. Like Job said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him and serve him. Though he kill me, let him come at me with a machete. Then I know that it's going to be good because I'm going to see him face to face. But what a concept to say, even if he slay me, which God's intention is not to slay us, but to help us, to give us a hope and a future. But Job's point is this. Even if it would seem to me that God is trying to hurt me, I'll trust him all the way. I'll trust him all the way. And then the last thing here, uh, he said, I didn't hold back from teaching you the truth, the truth that was causing me a lot of pain. I could have said, hey, Every time I say these things, I, got, I get slapped upside the head or there's people wanting to kill me. So then I will change the words so that my life will be easier and I won't be in so much pain. He said, I didn't do that. Neither should you guys. Because you're going to be tempted because every time you open your mouth and you get slapped, you're going to be tempted to open your mouth and say something that doesn't get you slapped. Say something nicer. Just change it a little bit. You can still say Jesus said it and use the Bible, but just take out the parts that get you slapped, right? And so now we have a gospel that's a slap-free version of the real gospel. Well, the, a slap-free gospel is not the gospel. It's a different thing. And if it's the gospel that saves and only the gospel saves, then this different thing, the slap-free version, it cannot save. It can save you from getting persecuted and get you in a standing ovation on a TED Talk or on Oprah Winfrey, yes, it can help you, but it's not going to help them. So he, what does he say? Look at your text. If it was going to help you and it's in the whole counsel of God, even if it means telling you you need to repent, you're erring, you're following the wrong teaching, you're slipping into sexual immorality, 
Even if it's a need to tell you something that is uncomfortable, I didn't hesitate so my, the blood is not on my hands because I told you everything. Even when it cost me something, I would tell you because I'm not the kind of moral weakling and coward who would know that what you're doing is going to destroy you but not say anything because I don't want to upset or fluster the feathers. That's called being a coward. That's not love. That's called hate. I don't care enough about you more than my own comfort levels to tell you the truth that can save you. Instead, I'll save myself. And I won't say it. He says, I didn't do that. Gentlemen, don't do that. It'll be temptation. And the rest of the church sees that. He says, no, I did my duty to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing nothing but the truth, so help me, God. That's what we do. Now he's going to say, so, my example, you saw it. Plots of assassination, humiliating circumstances, tears upon tears. I faithfully served the Lord. Here's my secret. And now I'm going to the, I'm going to Jerusalem, and it seems like it's God's will, compelled, prompted by the Holy Spirit, not knowing the exact plan, but I do know that in, <laughs> the Lord has been telling me, prompting me to brace myself, buckle your seatbelts, because it's going to be tough. So I decided not to go. No, he says, however, gentlemen, listen to my guiding principle, my worldview, my motto, my life verse. I don't consider my life dear, valuable. This is what the word means. Precious to me. Self-preservation isn't a top priority for me. What's higher than my precious life is something more precious, the one who gave me the life, the one who died for this life, the one who's commissioned me to be a minister and serve him, that's way more precious. He says, listen, for me to live is Christ, he tells the Philippians chapter one, to die is gain. So it's, it's really... Nothing new for me to be thinking like this. My life is all about Jesus. So whether I live, it's about Jesus. Whether I die, it's about Jesus. So I'm going to glorify and honor him, whether by life, whether by death. I don't determine anything other than one guiding principle. Is it God's will for me? Is this what God wants of me? It's so easy. And you know what God wants. You need to be a godly husband. You need to be a godly submitted wife. You need to love her as Christ loved the church. You need to respect him and come under and raise your children by example. In the nourishment of the teaching of the scriptures, you need to be a good hard worker. You need to be a blessing to your boss and your employer. These are the things that God is asking of us. Sometimes it's hard, but the consideration is always, is this what God wants of me? Then come what may, I'm 
in. I'm going to do it. I told the other services about a very moving conversation I had that has stuck with me for almost 30 years. Now, uh, I was in Japan. Uh, We were living there as missionaries. I had a missionary friend named Tom. And uh, we're about the same age. He's a little bit older. He was sort of like a mentor kind of guy. And we were talking, and things got really serious on the bus along the Sea of Japan. We were heading to a retreat. We were talking about being in our 30s and the meaning of life and what God has done for us and how God's been faithful in the future. And he said, you know what? It comes down to one thing for me my whole life. He said, God created me for something. Kind of see like this target, the bullseye, and me as an arrow in the quiver of God that he takes me in my life, loads me, and shoots me in the direction of that bullseye. And the only thing I want is to hit dead center for the purpose for which I was created. And I just knew I heard something that I will carry the rest of my life. And then I adopted that as my prayer. Let me hit the bullseye. Come what may. Come a hurricane. (laughs) Come a tsunami. Come my own wicked heart in rebellion. I want to hit that bullseye. And when it becomes more precious to you than your very heartbeat, then you are on the same page with the Apostle Paul. This is what he's talking about here. And then he says an amazing thing, and we'll close up with this. He said, here's what matters. Here's my bullseye. He says, I've got a course to run that every one of us, when we come into relationship with God, he puts a course in front of you. There's a course. It's different from the one sitting next to you, and it's different from mine, and mine's different from yours. But every Christian has a ministerial course to serve the Lord. And he says, so I heard the star's pistol go on the road to Damascus. Here's the course. No longer focused on the old things. You're going to be testifying to the gospel of grace. That God so loved the world that he made a a way for undeserving sinners to live forever and be forgiven. I heard the star's pistol. Go! And I've been running. Now he says to the Corinthians in chapter 9 of his first epistle, he says, don't you know that a lot of people enter a race? That'd be a marathon, a sea of faces. Only one of them is going to win. Run like that person. Well, And you're not competing against the minister, this minister, and I'm not competing against you godly people. No, I'm not. I'm competing against me. I'm, I'm competing against the course. He's got this course in, and, and before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 2.10 says he created us in Christ to do good works before the foundation of the world. So they're out there. 
We have to find them, and we find them by surrendering every day our hearts and lives and be willing to come what may, come through adversity, through humiliations, through tears, to keep serving, keep seeking, keep loving, to find those good deeds and do them on the course that he handcrafted for you while you're delivering mail and cutting hair and accounting, while you're raising babies and parenting and husbanding and (laughs) wifing. (laughs) Sorry, I make words up. That's the course. And he says, in it all, you have a course. You're running the race, testifying in that life of yours of the grace of God to your sphere, your congregation of people. So by you, how you live, how you think, how you speak, it's always pointing grace of God, grace of God, grace of God to others. This is the point. This is how we win the race. And this is how we hit the bullseye. I just had lunch with somebody who told me, because I'm just never going to make it. I just not, I'm not going to make it. I, too many sins, and I love it too much, and I just, I don't see, I just want to, but I just, I don't think I'm going to cross that finish line. And I said, listen, you will, you will. If you, you put your, your, your life in Jesus' hands, his spirit's going to get you over the line. When I said that, I thought of an illustration from a movie that I highly recommend if you want to cry and be inspired based on a true story. And I thought of this where this guy said, I keep falling. And I was like, there's the line that I keep... And it reminded me of a scene from the Disney movie, Iron Will. And it's about this kid. Uh, he has to... He, he, he has a race to uh, save the family farm. This is dad dad passed away and now his mom's alone and he's going to do this dog sled race it's called the Iditarod right whatever it's called I think it's a thousand mile race for ten thousand dollars that back in the day would solve all their problems I think I told the last service it was ten thousand miles instead of ten thousand dollars but oh well that's a long race but uh, it wasn't that long it was a thousand miles and so you know, oh my word, through the whole thing, there's all kinds of setbacks and betrayals and devious plots. And the guy, he's talented and you're rooting for him and he's iron will, come on, and the newspapers and everything's happening. And then right at the end, he just doesn't make it. Right at the end, he's like, you can see the finish line. The sled goes over, he's passed out, his face is all frostbitten. He can't go another inch. The bad guys are coming from behind. And suddenly, they start whistling. The crowd knows that his father had this famous tune that he would whistle to get the dog's attention to go. And they start whistling it. And he hears Iron Will, hears it, sits up, stands up. The dogs look at him. He looks at the dogs. They hear the Father's call. Oh, man. 
Oh, my word. I always just put the pillow straight over my face. You know, they're like, Dad, you're crying. I go, I have something in my eye, okay? I'm crying right now, thinking about it. Iron well, you got to see it. And, of course, the Father's tomb pulls him out of it and across that line they go. It's amazing. And I'm telling you what, the Holy Spirit in your time of struggle, he will sing the Father's song straight to that weary soul of yours and he, by the Spirit of God, will raise you up and carry you across that line. There is nothing stopping you as you surrender your will to him. Let's pray again. God, we look to you. We praise you, God. We are glad to know you and know that it's not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. (laughs) Says the Lord, God, it's all you. All we got to do is get ourselves lined it right, set the posture up in the posture of passiveness, letting you carry us, God, to serve you through intimidating circumstances, through humiliations, through tears and fears and worries and doubts. We keep on keeping on. And one day, we're going to cross that line and hit that bullseye. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.